I'm Susan LeVay on Women's Focus, and I'm talking to Jessica Bruder. You know, it was really depressing <laughs> reading your book. It, it was very warming and, and interesting, but it, it was kind of depressing. And you must have felt that way as you went back again and again to interview the people that you talked to. But the reason I wanted to talk to you is I'm doing something on the future of work. And it seems to me that you have, not by following that or, or looking for that, you've kind of come on what the future of work may be. So why don't we just start out with the premise of the book? Okay, so the premise of the book is I'm looking at a lot of people who are living in vehicles. Many of them are nearing or past retirement age, and many of them were pushed out of traditional housing by all sorts of economic factors from uh, 2008, losing their 401ks, losing their homes, watching everything go underwater, to uh, you know, experiencing just a lifetime of low wage work in a world, well, in a country at least, where wages have been flat for a very long time and those housing costs just keep going up. So confluence of factors got these people out on the road. They're often in secondhand RVs, travel trailers, vans, even a few sedans. I met a gentleman who lives out of a Prius. Oh. And so basically I, I wanted to know what their lives were like and how they were making it work. And I followed them over the course of three years. Yes, I think that that's one of the essence of the book is that you kept going back and finding out what happened to them. It wasn't like you just went around and interviewed people in various places, but you kept up with them and, and we see their lives as, as they kind of evolve. So that's something that really makes it touching and makes it hard to go back to, too. Yeah, I mean, I am lucky in that I got to do this in an immersive manner. I started off in a tent in the desert. When the story began, it was a Harper's Magazine article that led to the book. And then when I signed on to do the book project with Norton, I was able to get a van, which really changed my life because I could follow people, I could stay with them, I could go where they went, and I could be on scene 24-7. And just basically kept dropping in and out of that world and staying in touch with people. There's a huge social media component to to life on the road these days and all sorts of places where people gather virtually. So even when I was back in New York, I never really lost connection and it was uh, it was really fascinating and both harrowing and heartening to yeah. see how people handled the circumstances and the you know the cards they had been dealt. Well, one of the things that I've been thinking for a while is that we keep saying when the baby boomers especially come to retirement age, no one has saved enough for retirement. And then no one suggests what's going to happen. And no one goes beyond that in their sort of conjecture or their coping with things. But you've kind of found these baby boomers or younger or older who are dealing with an economy that just wasn't, that they didn't plan for. Absolutely. And a really impressive amount of older women in particular. I mean, as I'm sure your listeners know, women typically have lower lifetime earnings than men. There's still a gender pay gap. We, we see that obviously social security payments are lower towards women just because of that, those lifetimes of lower earnings and the fact that there's so much time typically uh, or traditionally spent in unpaid labor. So family caregiving, for example, is something that typically falls on the shoulders of women. So seeing people out there, one question I get often is, well, 
why aren't their kids helping them? And when you look at the big picture, often the kids barely have the resources to handle their own kids or their own lives. And it's just a huge challenge. So it's funny uh, when you say, I've kind of gone out and if this is the future of labor, we found out where these people went. I'm still worried, where do they go next? Let's talk about where they do find work, because they do manage to find work in places. They do find a lot of work. There are thousands of employers looking for these people and posting classified ads to solicit their services. They work everywhere from Amazon warehouses. Amazon has a dedicated program called Camper Force that hires exclusively RVers in Camper Force puts them up in RV parks and has them doing warehouse work in the months leading up to Christmas, which is their peak commercial season. Campground concessionaires all over the country, many of them in national parks, hire people to work as campground hosts, which is a quaint sounding job, but in reality involves a lot of cleaning toilets, picking up trash, shoveling out fire pits, dealing with rowdy campers. And when you're doing that job, you're on site 24 seven. And obviously, you're not compensated for all the time you're on site. So that's not not a good thing. We also see uh, people going to get hired at the sugar beet harvest in the Red River Valley. So that's up near the Canadian border. That's a pretty tough job. I went undercover on that one, and it kicked my butt. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, literally just thousands of jobs from coast to coast. Working at theme parks, there is a work camper who actually got killed on the job in the summer of 2016, falling on a ride. I mean, some of these jobs do seem to require a little bit more agility than we might find in older bodies. So that's that's kind of a stressful trend to watch. Mm -hmm. Talk about some of the things that the people had done beforehand, because you're not talking about lifetime carny workers or anything like that. No, most of these people hadn't gone to join the circus. it's, it's funny, I'd actually, when I was out on the road with Linda May, the main character in the book, I sent my mom a Mother's Day card that said, thank you for not selling me to the gypsies, which is probably a, uh, I, I hope that's not offensive, but it's, um, and Linda May just laughed and said, well, you went and joined them on your own. So a lot of people, you know, joke about carnies and this and that and being on the road, but most of these people came from, you know, a, a lifetime of jobs. And those jobs really, really range from, a boat builder to an advertising creative director to the former product product development director for McDonald's, a gentleman who's in the book and who's in a, a Wired magazine adaptation I just wrote from the book that just came out and it's in the October issue, to uh, Linda May, who's the focus of the book, who has experienced a lifetime of labor in low-wage jobs, which is, you know, wages have been depressed for such a long time. And when you're working these jobs, you really are living hand to mouth and don't make enough to accrue the savings. And, you know, there was the quote unquote responsible amount of of savings that one ought to put away for retirement. So it's this endless treadmill and a lot of people just don't know how to get off it. Mm -hmm. Talk about some of the things that actually happened, because some of them lost jobs, or a number of them, I think, because their companies folded or they I don't know, they probably went other places or something like that. Yeah, no, I I met people who lost jobs, who never had jobs, who couldn't get jobs because suddenly they're out in the market and, you know, there's ageism. And they Mm -hmm. they met it face on. I I met one guy, he might have been a little younger, but he had a scrap hauling company in Detroit that went under because 
the price of commodities changed and suddenly nobody wanted to hire anybody to haul scrap when it was more lucrative for them to do it themselves. Uh, another gentleman I met was a cab driver in San Francisco and he got pushed out by Uber. So you see all sorts of intersections yeah, between sorry. changes in the bigger economy and how it's working and the people that those changes are leaving behind. Okay. And then another thing that happened is some people who counted on their house to tide them o or to go into their old age, their house lost value and so they, or their possessions lost value. Absolutely. I saw, I met a bunch of people who expected that, you know, the value of houses never goes down. This is a gospel of the American economy and they believed it and that belief pretty much cost them everything. Okay. Could you talk a little bit about the numbers that it seems as though especially after 2008 when we had a recession that the numbers increased so quickly of people who were participating in the various things. Yeah, so all I've got is anecdotal. As you can imagine, tracking nomads is, it's a pretty, it, it's like herding cats, right? Because everybody has to have an official address. They need it for their driver's licenses, which is critical. They need it for voting. They need it for paying taxes. So it's not like there's some registry of nomads that we can refer to. But anecdotally, just speaking to people, including Bob Wells, who runs a website called CheapRVLiving.com that tells people how to do this, told me that traffic just skyrocketed in 2008. Based on talking to people, I would put the number in the tens of thousands. But again, that's an unscientific mm -hmm. guess based on a lot of stuff. But again, I wish I had more precise numbers for you. Just people say they see it increasing, and I'm, I'm seeing the people out on the road. Okay. Would you agree that this is, this is part of jobs for the future or work of the future? Absolutely. I mean, it's, I, I think it's something we will see more of because it's just so convenient for employers. Work campers are essentially plug-and-play labor. I mean, picture each RV as like a USB drive that can plug into any port anywhere. It's, it's almost an employer's dream. They, people show up and they've got their own self-contained homes and they're there when you need them and they don't really ask for much in the way of benefits and you have no long-term responsibilities to do anything for them and when the job is over, they're gone. Mm. So in a way, I see it as unfortunately something that's a part of the gradual erosion of protection for labor that's been going on in our in our country. Mm -hmm. I do too. That's what worried me. It, what happened to me is I got a pitch to sell a program that you could buy where you could you could call your workers any minute and have them come in and contact them and I thought this is going to be terrible for women. You know how do you have a family if you do that? So that's what got me on this thing. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about the women because a lot of the people in the book are women and I think you encountered a lot of women. Oh, I did encounter a lot of women. And also when I was encountering all these women, I kind of thought it was an exciting opportunity because when you think of the canonical road books in American culture, you think of Blue Highways by William Lee Steep Moon and you think of Travels with Charlie by Steinbeck and you think of On the Road by Kerouac. and Gosh, I'm not crazy enough to think that this book will go up into a pantheon like that. But by the same token, these are all through the male lens. And uh, the road book is always really seen as this kind of guy thing. And suddenly, I mean, I remember Gloria Steinem when her book My Life on the Road came out. Mm -hmm. uh, she was on the radio saying how there aren't any women's road books. 
and I was like, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so for me, it was really exciting to, to get to do that. And also it really represented what I was seeing in that, you know, we know women typically outlive men. Many of the women I met were of a generation where you weren't expected to go into the workforce. You were expected to get married and be in a one-income household, and you weren't going to be the breadwinner. And, you know, divorce happens. All sorts of things happen. You haven't accrued the same lifetime savings. Social Security is lower. And, yeah, just seeing a lot of really incredible, resilient, creative single women out there on the road. Mm-hmm. And they seem to form friendships, too, and sort of help each other out, at least from your book. They form incredible friendships. I have seen, gosh, I remember one woman fell out of her van and broke her arm, and other people formed a camp around her. They called Camp Recovery, helping her do everything from tie her shoes to make meals until she was better. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen people get sick, and other people keep bringing food to that person's trailer until things are better. I've seen people pass the hat when engines break down. I've seen people get hospitalized and other people take care of their dogs. I mean, just all sorts of mutual aid and caring. And, you know, some of the best things that, uh, some of the best things in human nature come out in this sort of adversity, which is really the double-sided sword here. Yeah. You got into some difficult situations yourself. And I think our listeners will appreciate your looking for Linda's property down on the border of Arizona, but it could have been the border of New Mexico, the same thing. Yeah, so this is the Sonoran Desert, so it's um, it's absolutely beautiful land. It's completely gorgeous, but, you know, I'm, I'm a Northeasterner, so it's really not familiar territory to me, and I was out there, I'd usually traveled in a van, but when I went to try to find Linda's land, I thought the book project would be over by then. So the van had come back with me to the East Coast. So I was out there in a rental car using GPS, trying to find a parcel with PVC posts at the corners, knowing it's rattlesnake season, there's no one else around. It did feel a bit like being in a kind of Twin Peaks meets (laughs) uh, Spaghetti Western, but I found it, and it was really exciting at the time to get to live stream it to Linda using my laptop. So I kind of got to be her Mars rover and give her a virtual tour of of the land. (laughs) But then you got stuck in the sand, right? Yeah, I left that part out. I totally got stuck in the sand, and it was, I'd seen, I was trying to figure out, does, does she have neighbors when she moves here? Will there be other people around? And I told myself, don't drive into that gulch, don't drive into that gulch. And then I drove into the gulch because I just was, I, it looked iffy. It was a dark patch in the road. And it's kind of near a floodplain, it turns out, that area. Happily, Linda's Land is not in the floodplain. But there are areas where you've got all sorts of arroyos and washes, and the water can really get going out there. So, gosh, Lonnie, with the tow company and Douglas, you really saved me. <laughs> they saw the clouds massing on the horizon, and they really hustled to get out there, no matter, even oh. though it was remote, and they pulled me out. Oh, I... I I thought it was the clouds of dust that they saw. I didn't understand oh, the clouds no, in the it book. Was heavy, heavy rain clouds. Oh, okay, great. heavy rain clouds. Oh, so geez. they were really sweet to come out and and pull me out of there. Okay, so Linda's plan for her future is to build an Earthship, and New Mexicans will appreciate that because the Earthships are in New Mexico, the original Earthships. In fact, we talked about them on the last show, and on Echo Tourism. So. She, that's what she wants to do, and she, she even went to Taos and found out about how to build them, right? 
Yeah, Linda's fascinated with Earthships. And actually, this ties into why I became so fascinated with Linda, is many of the people I talked to didn't really have the luxury of a long-range plan. People were working so intently on making the day-to-day happen that when I asked them what happens when you can't drive anymore, a lot of people were kind of at a loss, but not Linda. When I asked her, she went to the loft of her RV and pulled out a binder and started showing me all these pictures of Earthships, and I'd never seen them before, and as you know, they look like something that's Gaudi meets Dr. Seuss meets Star Wars, and it totally blew my mind. She started telling me about the water systems and the solar systems, and there are people who can talk the talk, but Linda May has been a general contractor. Mm. She knows her stuff, and that just really, uh, that really got me, and the fact that Linda had this goal that she was working towards, and if she had to do it in like bite-sized increments, she was going to keep doing it. And that's, yeah, that's one of the things that grabbed me about Linda. Well, I thought you were going to tell us at the end of the book whether she did it or not. It seems to me that the last thing you said was that she was getting a contractor to come and dig it out or, or level it or something like that. So an Earthship takes a very long time to build. I mean, unless you have a gigantic crew and Michael Reynolds backing and a really big budget. But uh, Linda is down there now. The funny thing with books is that, you know, things have to end because you've got to file your manuscript and be done. So when I finished the book, Linda, this is total spoiler territory, but Linda had called for the excavator and I actually drove the van back across the country and went to see her just last month. And she is, uh, she decided to put up a greenhouse. So my best friend and I went out there and helped her with construction for a few days. And just like she's done everything else, she's doing it bite by bite. And she, has she found out about people coming across the border or about traffic or, or things down there that are, are dangerous? Uh, Linda's very, very savvy. And I think she knows that, frankly, anybody coming across the border really doesn't want to encounter her. (laughs) So, so far, so good on that front. Linda doesn't get intimidated easily. And, um, and yeah, you know, she's out there and she's doing it. So what are your feelings about what's going to happen? Is this going to just keep increasing more and more, do you think? Or are we, is this kind of the number that we're going to have? And there'll be people falling on bad times and coming off of bad times? Uh, I could see it continuing to increase, but I also think a crackdown will continue to grow. We've been seeing, so the people I wrote about prefer to call themselves houseless. They do not like the stigma that goes with the word homeless, and I can't say I blame them because our society is deeply bigoted uh, about people who do not live in houses in a traditional sense. So uh, right now, there's a pretty big crackdown going on, uh, different municipalities all over the place making it illegal to sleep in a vehicle. We've seen actually what, what I call economic profiling in national parks, where if you don't have a domiciled address that you can prove you're living at, they'll tell you you can't have the same camping rights there that any other American citizen would have. They say because you don't have a house, you're making the forest your house. So even if somebody else could camp there for free for two weeks, you are not afforded the same rights. Mm-hmm. So I think there's going to be more demand for this lifestyle, but I think at the same time, things are already coming to a head uh, with people not being very tolerant of it. Oh, okay. Oh. 
Another thing I remember from your book is which state is the best state to come, or the easiest state to get a home in, which is, of course, not a real home. Sure. So it's a matter of doing what they call domiciling. So which one is the best one is definitely a matter of frequent debate among nomads. <laughs> um, Texas is popular. Florida is popular. I think, um, gosh, is it North or South Dakota? North Dakota. I'm going to double check that. But North Dakota is popular. And the funny thing there that really gets me is they want residents so badly that to become a Dakotan, all you have to do is spend one night in a motel and show them your receipt. And then, boof, you've got domicile rights. Uh, so it's incredible. Th that's kind of my favorite state story. <laughs> but in terms of what's the best, I think that's probably subjective. Okay. And the other thing I wondered is, do you think they're, they're able to vote? Or do you think that you have to live there longer to vote? So you have to, most states don't do mail-in ballots. If you can get an absentee ballot or a mail-in ballot, then you can vote remotely. But a lot of what I saw during the last election was people really, a lot of people weren't voting because they weren't in the states where they were domiciled. Oh. So I know one person who had just domiciled herself in Arizona and had a P.O. box and was able to just go and vote. And okay. did, proudly. Was, okay. But, but she, yeah. So there weren't a lot of people doing that. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of politicking. I think largely while there's a big libertarian streak and I've met people who both, I've met people who identify themselves as liberal, I've met people who identify themselves as conservative, I think the predominant attitude is that the cavalry isn't coming to help. <laughs> so I think there's a little loss of faith in government and not necessarily the loss of faith that makes you want to bring in somebody like Trump like the loss of faith that also encompasses someone like Trump mm. uh, and just a deep skepticism that anything that. useful is going to happen. Okay, I could, I could see that. How did they, what did they think about you as someone who was kind of, um, they knew wasn't really coming to live with them and wasn't one of them, but it seems like they pretty much accepted you. Yeah, I mean, it took some time and people reacted differently. Uh, one of the women in the book, and she would laugh if she knew I was talking about this, LaVon, the first time I met her, she was having a potluck and people were bringing eggs and potatoes for breakfast. So I showed up with a box of eggs. And of course, there were already 20 boxes there. So I felt useless. And she looked at me and said, oh, you're the journalist. You are going to make us look like a bunch of homeless vagabonds. And I had no idea. I, I, uh, for a journalist, I tend to be a little socially anxious, so of course I kind of just wanted to crawl into a hole, and so I think I went and spoke with some other people, but it's funny because over time, Levon has become one of the people I've gotten to know the best. She's one of the most articulate observers from within the culture that I know, and she's just incredible, and I think when she realized that I was not going away <laughs> and that I really was going to be there around for weeks and on and off and wanted to get a nuanced portrait of the culture that she warmed up. Oh. And I think that's true. That's true with a lot of immersion journalism is there's a deep skepticism, but people feel like they get to know you and what you're about. And sometimes for some people it changes and for some people it doesn't. Okay. What did your mother and your friends think? Oh, they thought it was really interesting. They did not love it when I was away for the holidays one year. Um, but on the whole, there was a lot of support. My best friend helped me bolt a solar panel <laughs> on the roof of the van, which was incredibly helpful. My dad drove part of 
the van trip back with me, people people were really into it and really supportive and also just thought I was crazy for doing it by myself and seemed almost disappointed when I told them that there hadn't been any crazy dangerous situations. People asked me mm. as a solo woman out on the road and, you know, somebody asked me if I had a gun. I was like, are you crazy? So <laughs> uh, I, I, I liked to freak people out by saying, oh, there was one really serious danger. And then they kind of light up and I said, caloric hazard. People try to feed you too much. <laughs> they want to show you that they can be hospitable and, you know, they're not quote-unquote homeless. They're out there. Mm. They can provide and there's a great culture of hospitality. Oh, so okay. so I don't think I lost any weight living in the van. <laughs> and it's probably hospitality with sugary food, right? A cheap sugary food. You'd be impressed. All sorts of food. I oh. actually... There are crazy ways people cook out on the road nowadays. And yeah, while I definitely saw people who knew that they wanted to be eating healthy and who were sometimes just exhausted and grabbing the fast food, I also saw people make some really amazing things in crock pots and solar ovens and just a whole array of, of different utensils that I really hadn't played with much at home. So that was kind of neat. Oh, that's nice. Are you going to do a book too? Or the the further tra travels with Linda, or what's next? Oh goodness, Linda's probably sick of me. Mm. I'm kidding, Linda. <laughs> um, what's next is actually completely different. So I wrote with my best friend, the same guy who helped me bolt the solar panel on the van. We're both journalists, and uh, this is a very strange story. We wrote it together in Harper's. Uh, I was the accidental mule for all of. Edward Snowden's leaked documents. They all came in a box to my apartment. Mm -hmm. And this is a very different topic. There's a Harper's story on this analog network that helped move information behind the leaks. At the time, I just knew it was an investigative journalism project. And we're going to be doing a short book for Verso, looking at the human face behind all of this crypto surveillance, basically these, these human trust networks mm. that actually make things go. Gee. And when will it be coming out? Will it be while people are f focusing on the, you know, his investigations? Well, we're hoping it'll be out next fall. And in terms of how quickly things move with Mueller, gosh, I just feel like I can't predict a darn thing right now. So mm -hmm. uh, who knows what will be going on when it comes <laughs> out? Hopefully we'll all still be here <laughs> between uh, all, the, all the chaos in the world right now. I, I wish I thought that were a given and some days I don't. But yeah, hopefully next fall. Great. Well, I hope you'll send it to us. I'd or be honored us, to. Send us the notice. Yeah, I'd be honored. Thank you.